We in downtown Oakland right now on Broadway. This is a gentrified ass place. The block that I'm on right now, I would not be called dead down here when I was a youth. Now it's hella cafes, cannabis clubs. Next to a bike shop where you can park your bike and leave your bike and then go back to your gentrified neighborhood. It's wild to see a development damn near in the middle of a fucking depression. I'm Delincey Parham. And I'm Abbas Muntakeem. And this is Tales of the Town, a podcast about Black Oakland. One love, one love, everybody. My name is Mr. Fab, local music artist, philanthropist, father, sports analyst, commentator, clothing owner, fashion designer. I got a lot of titles, man, but, uh, you know, a native Oakland kid, man, that just, you know, that, that loves the city and represents for sure. That's Mr. Fab. Like he mentioned, he's many things. But for those from here, he brought us classics like Ghost Ride It and New Oakland. Look, uh, I got the North, got the East, got the West with me. So I suggest you niggas don't mess with me. Nigga, be cool, cause you don't want to squabble. Cause we can do the food, but you don't want a problem. Put that on something, I put that on fathers. Put that on something, I put that on mamas. Put that on something, I put that on grand dust. You run up on Not only is he a rapper from North Oakland, but he owns his own clothing line, Dope Era, which he started about 10 years ago. We was cracking jokes one day, just playing around. A few guys and fellas, we were sitting up talking, and we was like, yo, what if we had a shirt with the gun from Nintendo on it? And it was like, they'd be like, that's your first strap. <laughs> and we put the idea together. My brother actually mocked it up, mocked up the idea, and it, it was pressed up some shirts and just hit the hood out the trunk, like out the rentals. And Went around selling shirts out the rentals, and folks was just like, yo, you really selling shirts, Fab? It's like, yo, I'm just grinding, man. Fab said he started selling T-shirts out his car. Truly the out-the-trunk method. We're selling shirts out the car. We're selling shirts out the car for about a year. After it just started growing so much, man, we couldn't, you know, it was only so much you could put in the rentals before the bip. The bip is serious. For those who don't know, Bippin' is a Bay Area art form born of the lumpin'. So you can't just leave all the sweaters and stuff in the car and, and, and you know, so the spot became available in the neighborhood right there on 45th and Market and was like, yo, we might as well get it. And uh, we got it and just everything else is a uh, history. Fab grew up on 45th and Market in Oakland in the 80s and 90s, and he told us what it was like. When I was a kid, you couldn't just be outside. You had to know somebody. Like, people was getting killed and buying and selling drugs. Like, I've lost six friends on that corner, like, really, who got killed on 45th and Market. You compare our childhoods to other people's childhoods that didn't grow up like the places that we grew up. It was like a nightmare to to them. But to us, it was just, that's what life was. We survived. Things weren't always easy for Fab, but 45th and Market was his block. And this was not the same Oakland we experienced today. Things was different. What did Oakland look like? I think it was, you know, it was a lot of more thriving businesses. It was affordable at the time. So you saw a lot of more, a lot more black people involved in communities. 
I saw black-owned liquor stores. I saw a lot of, you know, a lot of things, black-owned floor shops, uh, flower shops. And I think the dynamics of it is you definitely saw a lot more of us in the community as opposed to now. And because Fab grew up right on 45th and Market, opening up his own clothing shop there was hella significant for him and his community. To be able to open up a, a store right in the neighborhood that you grew up in, that was amazing, man. And now the barbershop just recently left, but we bought it back and I'm opening up a nail shop next month. So I got a nail shop right there in the neighborhood that we grew up, me and my sister. Fab operated Dope Air in the North for about five years. But as his neighborhood began to change as a result of gentrification, there was an increased police presence and harassing of his patrons. These factors, in addition to the success and expansion of the Dope Era brand, ultimately led to him having to find a new storefront in downtown Oakland. When he moved his shop, it was 2018, and it was being in downtown Oakland that showed Fab how it wasn't just North Oakland that was changing. It was the entire town. The change is when you begin to see white people walking their dogs in some of the craziest neighborhoods that you wouldn't even walk in. You know, you'd be like, damn, she just jolly. Like her and this cocker spaniel walking through this thing. Look at this Caucasian and this cocker spaniel, man, just walking through here, not worried about nothing. Walk right through the dice game. You're like, wait a minute. You're not even finna say excuse me or nothing? You know, that's when I knew it was just, it was different, man. It was crazy. You start seeing the old buildings and apartment buildings getting taken down and condos getting put up, skyscrapers getting put up. You're like, man, they just gonna put, oh, you just gonna put this right here, huh? Forget our boys club, huh? You just gonna put these expensive ass condos, can't nobody afford right here, huh? Okay. What's wild is that Fab told us his grandfather used to own apartments on 45th back in the 70s. For decades, the North had a vibrant black community until it didn't. Gentrifiers moving in and saying we're disturbing or we're a nuisance to the neighborhood, which to me is hilarity. A whole family been here. We a nuisance to the community? How do you respond to somebody saying, we're going to call the police on you because y'all out here hanging out and y'all a gang, but you've been grew up, you didn't grow up with this dude since y'all was five years old, and we a gang? And not only does gentrification affect him in his neighborhood, it affects the way his business is treated in Oakland. If you see 10 people hanging outside of Starbucks, you would say that they're socializing and they're patronizing with Starbucks. You see some 10 people hanging out of an urban store that's a reflection of their community. Oh, that's loitering. What line is it where it's patronizing and what line is it loitering? This isn't just a place of hangout. Like, this is actually a thriving business. So basically, it's a double standard. Gentrifiers, mainly white gentrifiers, can hang out outside of businesses in Oakland and are not bothered. And stores like Dope Era, which is Black-owned, gets targeted. So the hyper-surveillance and racism that Fab and the Dope Era community has experienced in both North and downtown Oakland are not anomalies. These experiences are just a continuation of colonization and a reminiscent of Oakland's history of redlining. Now these historically black neighborhoods are having whites come in, and the black community is now pushed out. But despite the racism Fab has faced as both a resident and business owner, he still has hope to further build his business. And though his store Dope Era is still thriving in downtown Oakland, he has another dream for it. 
there's nothing like being in your own neighborhood. That's why one of the goals is to go back and go by that whole area. For Fab, the mark of success is when he's able to follow in the footsteps of his grandfather, to own property and operate a business in the same community he was born and raised in. This is a historical legacy for black folks in the town. We can go back as far as the 40s and 50s, where we saw black folks owning and operating businesses where they lived. Oakland was a black town. It had flipped in the late 50s. It was known as Harlem West because it was a large community of black ownership. That's my Uncle Freddie, who we heard from in a previous episode. What he's referring to as Harlem of the West is 7th Street in West Oakland, which we talked about in our music episode. Uncle Freddie grew up after 7th Street was really popping off, but he remembers the stories he heard. Sammy Davis Jr. and Satchmo and all those guys, they would go over to San Francisco and make their money, but they would come to 7th Street, to the clubs on 7th Street in Oakland to be with their people and perform. Look down, look down. That lonesome road before you travel on. Look up. Seventh Street in West Oakland was a black mecca in the 40s and 50s. There was hella black-owned businesses. You had lawyers, doctors, pharmacies, but its main attraction were the nightclubs, where famous artists came to play. Ronnie Stewart, the executive director of the West Coast Blues Society, who we heard from in the previous episode, talks more about 7th Street's significance. By the way, we met up with him near the water in Richmond, California. So if you hear random waves and bird noises in the background, that's why. 7th Street was absolutely one of the most important contributors to what's now called West Coast Blues and what's now called funk music and hip-hop music and rap music. All the great jazz musicians would come to 7th Street and play. And 7th Street was um, where all the maritime workers would go before and after work. You had your Slim Jenkins with the napkins and uh, candle holders and everything on the table. And then you had Miss Essie's place where you could fight and do anything you want to shoot dice. (laughs) But like most things that are ours, 7th Street and the haven for black folks that it was, didn't get to last long. In true colonizer fashion, the whites made their move. As time moved on, we moved up into the 60s, around 64, 65. Bart decided to come to 7th Street. The President of the United States officially broke ground to launch construction of the Bay Area Rapid Transit System that will travel the 75-mile interurban system linking Alameda, Contra Costa, and San Francisco counties. BART, our train system here in the Bay Area, decided to build right through West Oakland. Beginning construction in 1966, it severely impacted the thriving Black-owned businesses and nightclubs 
According to Ronnie, most black folks didn't even know about the city of Oakland's meeting around the redevelopment of BART, so no one could really fight against it. BART got, you know, these big tunnel diggers and all these construction workers and big trucks parking there in front of their business. And BART's demolishing of West Oakland went on for five or six years. And this affected black business owners on 7th Street. Eventually, many of them had no choice but to close down. They destroyed thriving neighborhood. They destroyed thriving businesses. 7th Street was dead. That was the end. That was the total disaster. That was cultural genocide of 7th Street. So due to urban renewal and BART infrastructure going straight through West Oakland, thousands of homes were torn down and many black residents were forced out of the area. 7th Street, a.k.a. Harlem of the West, was destroyed. What's left of it today is the memory of the times, captured solely by the marquee of the old popular jazz club, Esther's Orbit Room, as well as a small walk of fame on the sidewalk. In the 1960s, as Bart was destroying 7th Street and a lot of West Oakland, my uncle Freddie saw how this was shifting his community in East Oakland. When redevelopment happened and quote-unquote redevelopment happened in West Oakland, when they built the uh, 24 corridor and started on the BART line through 7th Street, they demolished a lot of homes and a lot of blacks. Black folks moved to East Oakland. That's one of the reasons why East Oakland uh, gained its high population of uh, African-Americans. So, yeah, Uncle Freddie talks about 7th Street and how West Oakland was redeveloped and how the construction of BART the cluster of building 580, 880, and the 24 corridor all destroyed this vibrant community. Another key factor was the building of the post office headquarters on 7th Street. While this may seem all like random progression, there were cultural, socioeconomic, and political causes that led to the city of Oakland executing these plans. We've reached the point in the show where it's time for us to put you on some. Put me on some. So today, let me put you on to this. When we talk about the war on black power, specifically the war on the Black Panther Party, oftentimes what comes up is COINTELPRO, which used assassination campaigns, disinformation campaigns, character assassination, surveillance, false imprisonment, and many more tactics to defeat the Black Panther Party. Bruh, and Hoover legit said that the Black Panther Party was the biggest threat to national security. The feds talked about the party as if it was a foreign military invading America. So why wouldn't the government do any and all things to destroy the party? And one tactic the state used to help destroy the party that isn't often talked about is how the state destroyed the community through urban renewal, the predecessor for gentrification, as part of the war on the Black Panther Party. If you remember on episode three, we talked about how Merritt College, which essentially was Panther University, was moved from North Oakland all the way up to the hills in East Oakland. This was done in order to stop black people in the flatlands from getting a vital education, the type of education that was leading to people taking action. The government understood that if you destroy a vital community space, it makes it much more difficult for people to organize. In my opinion, the state wanted folks to believe that they moved the college into the hills of East Oakland as a safety measure, claiming that the building's infrastructure wasn't up to earthquake standards. But today, over 40 years later, 
the building still stands with little to no changes and it currently runs as a fully operational senior citizen center. And that wasn't the only geography that changed. They built BART, and that went right through Grove Street, what we now know as MLK, right where Merritt College used to be. And they also built highways. And with infrastructure changing, families were forced to leave. And North Oakland's black population has significantly changed. This changing geography and gentrification can all be rooted back to the war on black power. These crackers destroyed a community that was demonstrating self-determination and independence. Let's get back to the story. My Uncle Freddie grew up in East Oakland during the 60s. He talks about what life was like back then. We moved to East Oakland the year I was born, 1960. We were one of two black families in the neighborhood. East Oakland at that time, that part of East Oakland, kind of looked like San Leandro. Deep San Leandro kind of looks like today, you know, manicured lawns and um, nice clean streets and all that stuff. But by the time I was 12, 13, there was only two white families living in the neighborhood. So white flight happened. White flight was when white people started moving out of cities like Oakland and into the suburbs because black people were moving in. And as we've discussed in previous episodes, when whites move out, the city fails to maintain proper infrastructure. This leads to black communities having less resources for services such as schools, grocery stores, hospitals, and community programs. And instead, they see a rise in state violence as now pigs increase patrols in these so-called bad neighborhoods. Brandy Summers, an assistant professor of geography and global metropolitan studies at UC Berkeley, who we heard from in our last episode, broke some of this down for us, specifically how white flight impacted the town. It's characterized as white flight, as if they kind of fled from the danger of the city. But in reality, the federal government and and the local and state government were providing incentives for white people to move outside of the city and get homes, get these fair mortgages for them to purchase homes there. So it was like they were lured out to the suburbs. It left Oakland destitute and and without, you know, proper financing and, and, and ultimately just, you know, disinvested. And with this divestment, Brandy says that you began to see the abandonment of buildings. And with that, West Oakland and East Oakland began to look dilapidated. And to outsiders and the pigs, this was synonymous with the ghetto or violent areas. So whites were leaving and beginning to build wealth in the suburbs while resources for the areas where they once lived diminished. This must be understood as a culmination of three decades of so-called urban renewal. As whites began moving to the suburbs, new transportation for the quote-unquote public good was needed. And therefore, both BART and freeways were built in this time period so whites can get to their city jobs. And while BART trains would go through some of the densest neighborhoods in Oakland and didn't stop in them, in white neighborhoods, they had more stops, allowing whites to get on the train and avoid black neighborhoods. This permanently changed the geography of West Oakland. It divided the city, even divided the black folks, kept the East, East Oakland folks from the West Oakland folks. There was no connected thread. So you either from the east side or the west side. So urban renewal and structural racism literally created the divide of East and West Oakland. And if you're from the town or any other ghetto in America, you know that the impact of these types of borders runs deep. Like Fab mentioned earlier, growing up in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, you couldn't just be outside anywhere in Oakland if you didn't know somebody from that area. It's like a divide-and-conquer tactic. 
and we can trace it back to the early effects of urban renewal and redlining. Most of our elders talk about how when they was growing up in the town, they knew everyone on their block, and so did their parents. My Uncle Freddie talks about this, and I know your Uncle Clarence does too. But that sense of community, it really started to shift because of urban renewal. This laid the foundation for what we've come to know as gentrification. We hit the 2000s, right? And we see all these crazy lending practices that happen and we get to a foreclosure crisis. So this is a bit of a recap from the last episode. But what Brandy is referring to is that in 2007, black folks who were trying to get homes were three times more likely to get a subprime loan than a prime loan because of racist predatory lenders who considered them higher risks. And subprime loans carry a higher interest rate than prime loans. So many black folks had to default on their loans, and this led to foreclosures and real estate investors buying these houses and turning them into apartment buildings rather than single-family homes. By 2011, more than 240,000 black families across the U.S. had lost their properties to foreclosures. So with tech moving in at the same time, rents were increasing. So many black families couldn't afford to get new places to live in Oakland after they lost their houses. So they were forced to move further east, making Oakland not really a black city anymore. Thinking about it just anecdotally, I mean, it screws up neighborhoods, right? Like, just as I was talking about how I grew up, I lived in a neighborhood. Like, I knew my neighbors. I knew the kids. I knew their cousins, their aunties. You know, they knew us. We could stay out, you know, riding our big wheels or our bikes in the middle of the street. There are ways that communities are formed um, over time and neighborhoods are formed over time. And there's this kinship that happens when you have sometimes multi-generational families like, you know, my grandma's lived with us, my aunties have lived with us. So these ways that you create this fabric by living amongst people who really kind of share similar values in a sense where you want to have a safe, cohesive environment. According to the Bay Area census in the 80s, Oakland used to be nearly 50% Black. And starting in the 2000s, that number has kept decreasing drastically. And that's because gentrification raised the cost of living in the town. As it relates to, you know, this crisis of affordability, you know, the one thing is that the city has really been focused a lot on saying that there's not enough housing uh, for people. And that's the problem. And, and that's a build problem, right? Like, that's a problem of we just need to build more places when that's not really what's going on. We, we know there's enough housing. There are plenty of empty homes, empty structures that exist in Oakland. But really, it is a problem with affordability. The cost of living here is exorbitant. And thinking about the minimum wage or even just regular wage jobs don't provide enough money for people to actually pay rent, let alone buy a home. Like Brandy mentioned, there's plenty of homes in Oakland. Hell of them are vacant because people can't afford to live in them anymore. And since our Mayor Libby Schaaf and the city of Oakland would rather let houseless people stay on the streets, these houses stay vacant. This is a fundamental problem of capitalism. And when you walk around West Oakland now, where bustling 7th Street was, it's super gentrified. High rises, beer gardens, and new stores that cater to this white population. And downtown Oakland is similar. Hella coffee and overpriced acai and smoothie shops. Oakland can be considered ground zero for hypergentrification. 
Uncle Freddie remembers when he first started to notice West Oakland changing. When we went down there to to visit one of my aunties and they had torn up 7th Street and, you know, 7th Street was a mess. All the uh, the businesses were shuttered and were being demolished. And we went down there to visit one of my, to get one of my aunties. I looked across the street and I saw this white family and, and I had never seen any white folks in that neighborhood before. I remember that specific moment. And my auntie said, yeah, they just moved in last week. They bought the old Johnson's house and they're fixing it up and they're nice people and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But we had no idea that that's what was going on, that the, the old folks were not passing that wealth on to the next generation. This was around the late 70s, but that continues to happen. Black families, specifically when they get older, are targeted by real estate companies, pushing them to sell their homes that they've had in their families for years. And if they are older, they sometimes don't understand the deal they are signing, or they can't afford the property taxes that are raising. And so they sell their homes or are pushed out, and white folks or newcomers that can afford it swoop in. Uncle Freddie told us about how the art scene also began to gentrify Oakland many years later. I was an art student, and I was at Academy of Arts, and someone was having a party. One of the artists was having a party in their warehouse loft. And I said, oh, where's that? You know, I was thinking it was somewhere in San Francisco. And I said, no, it's in Oakland. You know, we're just going to take the BART over and get off. So I rode the BART over, on, you know, back to my town, got off of West Oakland, went up the street. And there was, you know, it was a party, artist's loft. It, it was an old warehouse. And I went in there, it was just, I remember that was an old machine shop because my dad and my grandfather used to go there to get things tooled. And it was Mr. Something. I can't remember his name, but it was an older, older black man who owned it. And I went in there, it was just all these white folks and all these artists. And it was nice, don't get me wrong. It was, you know, they had their little areas and they had their areas where they were painting and doing their different artworks and stuff like that. But I, but I was just, it struck me as this is an odd place for them to be and what happened to the business that was in here before. And what he saw was that a lot of artists were moving to West Oakland because the rent was cheaper than San Francisco. And then, you know, they started buying up the places, the old Victorians, and fixing them up. That's when it dawned on me what was happening. Gentrification was really happening. Within a few years, you know, it's everywhere. As you can see, gentrification and urban renewal have been plaguing the Black community of Oakland for decades. Taking our homes, shutting down our businesses, forcing us to relocate. And in the midst of this, there are a few folks like Fab who have been lucky enough to stay. I can never turn my back on Oakland. This is what made me. I could have opened up a store anywhere. Even with the first store, I could have opened that up anywhere. I'm one of the only people that stayed here. And that's true in many ways. Fab's Dope Era is one of the few stores in the town that is Black Oakland owned that was able to stay open. And this isn't the norm. A lot of Black businesses closed down, like the ones on 7th Street did 70 plus years ago. Like we said earlier, once thriving businesses on 7th Street are now boarded up or completely destroyed. Today, there are some people and initiatives who want to try and bring back parts of 7th Street, like Esther's Orbit Room, back to life. But it's hard to imagine that we will ever get 7th Street to really feel like how it was 
when the city of Oakland continues to raise the tax bracket, put new high-rises in West Oakland, displace black folks from the town, and continue to evict houseless people from their encampments rather than helping them secure housing. It's hella hard to see an area that you grew up in become a place that's beyond gentrified. It's wild that a town where our elders came to find refuge and escape white terrorism of the Jim Crow South is now a place that their descendants, us, are being thrown out of. And none of it is a coincidence. It's born of the American colonizer tactic of the white and wealthy doing what they want with the land, no matter how it impacts the masses of people. Like Ronnie Stewart said, it really is cultural genocide. But it goes beyond just cultural genocide, as what Black people in Oakland have experienced is nothing short of physical definitions of genocide, too. Black folks in Oakland, through gentrification, have experienced hyper-policing by the Oakland Pig Department, which has led to over 100 people that we know of being killed. Black Oaklanders have been forced out of their own neighborhoods and have had to form refugee-like houses camps in the street. The policing and the terrorism from the Oakland Pig Department has created PTSD-like conditions in many of our people, and they have locked generations of Oaklanders in prison and forced many children into foster care. But this is why me and Delency organize with people's programs. We understand that we are our own liberators and that we are building programs so that we can decolonize Oakland and free the land from settler colonialism. So, I'm Abbas Muntakim. And I'm Delency Parham. And this is Tales of the Town, a podcast about Black Oakland. Next week on Tales of the Town. Oh, look at this run. What a run. Marshawn Lynch. He does. Ricky Henderson. No contest. Steals third base. We're talking all things Oakland sports. Before you turn us off, just a brief reminder. In addition to the Tales of the Town podcast, we also have the Tales of the Town album. We partner with musicians from across the Bay Area to put together 11 original songs and all proceeds go towards supporting the Oakland-based organization, People's Program. Here's a snippet of All Black Power featuring YMTK, All Black, and Kevin Allen. Available everywhere now. I'm still sick as fuck what they did to Oscar Gray. Black power, black power, out the soil, grew these black flowers. New light blooming, that's ours. New heights reach for this black power. Early morning to the late after hours. Shit will never die, we charged up in empire. Yeah, off that black power, black power, black power, yeah. Black power, yeah. Black power, yeah. Black power, yeah. Tales of the Town is hosted and executive produced by me, Delincey Parham, and Abbas Muntakeen. Our senior producer is Maya Cueva. Fact-checking done by Danya Soliman and Bashir Matt. Mixing and sound design is done by Pat Masidi Miller and Lauren Newsom. The theme song was produced by Cheyenne G and Carrie Lynn. Additional music in this episode is courtesy of Umami Funk and Chef Lee. Special thanks to Mr. Fab, Uncle Freddie, Ronnie Stewart, and Brandy Summers. If you'd like to learn more about the history of 7th Street, 
you can visit West Coast Blues Society at westcoastbluesociety.org. If you like the music you heard in this episode, check the description to find the links. If you enjoy Tales of the Town, please give us that five-star review and make sure to subscribe at wherever you get your podcast at. I'm Delincey Parham. I'm Abbas Munta King. This is Tales of the Town.